I have the privilege today to interview our latest guest, Dr. Samantha Roman, better known on TikTok as Dr. Sam. You'll learn valuable insights from our guest who's not only a John Hopkins MS trained neurologist, but also a fellow MS warrior. Hello, MS Gym family. I am so excited to start this new year off with a very special guest. We'll call her Dr. Sam as she's well known on TikTok and she has so much information to share with the MS community and the world of TikTok. So I'm excited today to uh, get to know her a bit better and to and to pick her brains and learn about all things MS. So Dr. Sam, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, is it okay if we call you Dr. Sam as that's how you're known on TikTok? <laughs> that's fine. Sam also works. <laughs> okay. Either okay. way. Can you tell me a bit about your education, where where things kind of started? Sure. I um. So when I was in college, I was a psychology major, and I actually thought I might be a therapist, like a counselor or a psychiatrist. I wasn't really sure. Um, I did some work in the ER as a scribe. So I was doing charting for the ER doctors while I was in college, and I really liked medicine. Um, I got to see a lot of interesting things in the ER. So um, that kind of pushed me to apply to medical school. And then when I was in medical school, I kind of came in with the idea that maybe, you know, I was still kind of mental health oriented, um, interested in psychiatry and the brain and, and mental health. Um, once I got to the clinical part of medical school, I found that I really didn't enjoy the practice of psychiatry as much. Um, I didn't feel like, I felt like there was a bit more subjectivity in it that I'd like. And I was really uh, drawn to neurology because of the kind of puzzle aspect of it, um, the medicine in it. And, uh, you know, it, I thought it was really neat that I think personally neurology has the best neurologic exam. So we can often figure out where the problem is just based on listening to a patient and doing an exam. So I really liked that aspect of it. Um, and so I found my way into neurology or interested in neurology. <clears throat> and then around that same time, actually, is when I started having symptoms and ultimately, like probably a year later was diagnosed. But that kind of pushed me more into being interested in neuroimmunology, which includes MS and other autoimmune neurologic disorders. And um, I was training at a place where I had a lot of exposure to really interesting neuroimmunology cases. And so I kind of was like, oh, this must, this is kind of what I was meant to do. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, so then I, I just stayed, um, <clears throat> I completed all of my training at Hopkins, my residency, and um, I'm almost done my fellowship now. That's very exciting. Now, were you, were you actually starting in neurology and neuroimmunology when you were diagnosed? Like, were you already in the program? Um, not yet. I was still a medical student. I was a, okay. um, right at the end of my third year. So medical school is four years and around the third end of the third year, you apply for residency. I kind of decided a little bit late that I liked neurology and I decided to take a year to do research. So I added a year to my medical school education. Um, and so during that year I was doing MS research and right in the beginning of the year, I actually had my third relapse and that was when I was diagnosed. <clears throat> okay. What were some of your symptoms when you first started with these relapses? So I had, before I knew kind of what, now I know now <laughs> that my initial relapse was a very mild optic neuritis, okay. uh, like so mild that my vision acuity was fine. I was still seeing 2020, um, but I had some subtle vision changes, color desaturation, and everything just seemed really bright. I mean, I kept going to the eye doctor and they said, you know, everything looks fine. Um, 
I then I had a subtle INO, like a partial, what we call a partial INO, which is a long word, but basically means your eyes aren't moving together. Okay. It's a very common presentation for MS. And at the most extreme, it's like, you know, you look when you look to the side, one eye goes out and the other eye kind of just stops midline. And mm. so the eyes are very much not together. Um, mine was a more mild case. So my eyes just weren't moving completely together. <clears throat> and again, at that point, I was evaluated by ophthalmologist and they said everything looks fine. Um, and my third relapse when I was diagnosed was a more obvious optic neuritis. Okay. And I did lose vision in the central part of my visual field. And at that point I knew what it was. <laughs> so I was able to go to the people I was working with, you know, doing research and say, Hey, I have optic neuritis. <laughs> and after oh. that, we uh, kind of, the diagnosis was pretty much confirmed at that point. Did you feel that it was kind of like a, a sick irony in a way that you're studying, you know, to, to go into neurology that you have this interest and then suddenly you're diagnosed with this, you know, uh, autoimmune disease that you're diagnosed with MS. Did it feel kind of like a, a sick joke a little bit? Oh, not, <laughs> not really. I oh. would say I, the reason I was interested in the MS research being done at Hopkins was because when I started to have symptoms, you know, as a medical student, it's almost ironic because there's this thing called medical student syndrome where mm. you think you have everything you're studying and, and and every medical student's super anxious about something that they think they have at some point in their medical career. And so, um, you know, I was like, when I started having my first symptoms and I was reading and I was like, maybe it is MS. And I, you know, kind of went down a rabbit hole reading about research and things that were happening at Hopkins where I was training. And I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting stuff. And even if this doesn't apply to me personally, I think, you know, I was looking for opportunities to get involved in research. And I said, this is, this is interesting. I'd like to do this. So I think I found those opportunities because of my symptoms. <clears throat> and then it kind of evolved together while I was doing okay. that work. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I was, I was reading about uh, John Hopkins. It said it's one of the, the biggest clinical and research facilities in the world, actually. So it's an, it sounds like a really amazing place to study medicine, especially neurology. Yeah, we have a very big MS center and a very large neuroimmunology division within our department. Um, uh, there are, I mean, yeah, there's other places around the country that have just as large, uh, like, you know, a center, but uh, patients do come from kind of all over to be seen. Okay. And so I think it's a really good opportunity as a trainee, especially to see some of the more rare things, especially, or rare presentations of common things um, that okay. you, know, you may not see at a smaller hospital. And so I think that was really helpful for me, really at every level of my training. As a medical student, I didn't realize what I had exposure to till I started applying for my you know, residency and fellowship and realizing that, wow, I actually had a really good exposure and, and really there was no reason for me to leave, which is why I've been training for 10 years now in the same place. Okay, okay. <laughs> Did you, after your, after your diagnosis and you kept learning more and more about MS, did you make any sudden lifestyle or diet choices at that point? Uh, you know, I'd like to say I did, but the truth is I did not. And I don't, and, you know, I think that's pretty typical for most people. I felt fine. <laughs> I felt good. And I don't think I really started to seriously consider making changes until I was doing a project on diet and MS and it was intermittent fasting or calorie restriction. And when I was, uh, you know, I was read, writing up the paper for that and doing the literature review and reading all the evidence of diet and MS and the mouse model of MS. And it was really convincing. And at that point I was like, wow, I really should, you know, like really be watching what I'm eating and, 
like, so at that point, yeah, I, I became much more cognizant of kind of what I was eating, trying to limit processed foods. Um, and I don't think I really found exercise that I really enjoyed until I met my, um, my current husband and he, he's a real gym person. And so we um, would go to the gym together and I always would try to run and do cardio and just hated it mm. <laughs> so much. And so I finally learned how to do weight training and strength training. And I loved it. And I was like, this is, uh, my body responded well to it. I felt great. And so that was something I really could stick with. So I think um, that really opened my eyes to telling, you know, patients, especially like, you know, just keep trying new stuff until you find something that clicks for you. Because if you're just going to force yourself to do an exercise that you absolutely hate, you're never going to do it. Absolutely. And, right. And so you got to find something that you really enjoy. Um, so I think it kind of has evolved along with my training. And the more that I've learned about it and said, well, this is actually like really important. Um, not to say that I'm perfect. Like, you know, I go through phases like everybody else where I don't exercise as often. And I'm like, oh, I really I'm more fatigued now. I know I should get back in the gym. And, uh, you know, so it's always a work in progress. Okay. Fair enough. Now, if you had your, perfect compliance patient that would follow a specific diet or exercise like we, would you have something specifically like if you had someone who was willing like I'm all in Dr. Sam like, <laughs> what do what do I need to do would would you have something like that or do you feel like it's so patient specific that you wouldn't be able to necessarily have a blanket yeah I really think it is patient specific and I'll say like the thing that I strive for myself is like in terms of exercise, like a combination of cardio, strength training, and then core balance, like yoga. So like for me, my perfect exercise routine would be like two days of cardio, two days of strength training, and then like a day of doing yoga and like core exercise. I think that would be my recommendation for most people. Um, and then in terms of diet, I think it's really, really person dependent. Um, I know I just did one of my recent videos on like, you know, I think some, most people, pro some people may have a food trigger. And so it's hard, you know, I've noticed personally myself with my inflammatory arthritis that there is some food trigger I haven't identified yet. Um, and, you know, I think those kind of things are very, very specific um, and very individualized. So generally speaking, you know, I just tell people limit your processed foods, limit the added sugars. We know that excess like refined greens are not good um, for us. And so that that is kind of my general recommendation. And then I also tell people whatever diet you're going to stick with is the best one for you. Fair <laughs> like enough. Same thing like the exercise, right? Is you're going to force yourself to do something you hate. You're not going to be able to sustain that over the long term. And are there certain lifestyle um, factors that people do that really are making potentially their MS worse, like things that they're doing that are really detrimental? Uh, I think smoking is a big one. And I know smoking, I mean, quitting smoking is extraordinarily hard, but there's a lot of evidence that smoking leads to worse outcomes in the end, faster progression. So that's like the biggest thing if people are smoking that we counsel them on. Um, and then the next things are obviously if you, the unhealthy diet and sedentary lifestyle, those are things that are also sometimes really hard to fix, but um, can make a big difference for, for people. And, you know, I, I think the people that we see with decades of disease that are still walking without a aid and they're doing really well are generally the ones that are active, exercising, frequently eating healthy. And so, you know, it's hard for a lot of people and there's a lot of factors. It's a very oh, new like, socioeconomic factors. Um, it's very challenging for some people, but those are the main things like smoking is number one and then diet exercise are number two and three. 
So I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I met you on TikTok. So why TikTok and how did how did all of that come about? Well, I actually did not know it would take off on TikTok, but it makes sense now that I understand how the algorithm works. Mm. I had made my accounts on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook at the same time, and I had never used TikTok before. So it was mm. a bit of a learning curve for me. Um, but, you know, I'd been thinking about this for a while. I um, We have the same conversations with patients in the clinic. And then oftentimes there's a lot of information patients want to know, but we just don't have the time to give it to them. Mm right? In our clinic visits, we were pretty limited. Um, and so I was just thinking, you know, if we could just, if I could just record this and, and people could just watch it and they could replay it at home if they forget, or even people who don't have access to an MS specialist could see it, like how, how great that would be. And so it took me a while to kind of like build up the guts to <laughs> videotape myself mm. and put it out there. Um, but I've definitely got more comfortable with it as I've gone. So, um, Yeah. So as I was mentioning earlier, the TikTok algorithm kind of puts new content in front of people. And I think that has been really helpful, especially with the, their, I guess, has transitioned from the short videos to longer format videos. So my videos that are, you know, four to nine minutes long are like the algorithm seems to really like them. (laughs) Whereas Facebook and Instagram, their reels are limited to 90 seconds. And it's kind of more like your network and friends of friends. So it really hasn't taken off in those spheres. Um, so I, I really think what I'm trying to do is more suited for TikTok. And I'm definitely learning as I'm going. Are you a presence on Facebook and Instagram in a, in a different capacity? Like, could people still find you on those other medias? I put the same videos, more, most of the same videos. Um, there are a few where it's like a very specific response to a TikTok question where I maybe won't. But for the most part, I will put the videos on Instagram and Facebook. The handles are the same on all of the platforms. They're all that MS doc. And I just recently realized though, that they were truncating my videos at 90 seconds. So people do mm. watch my eight minute video. It just stops yeah. at 90 seconds. So now I'm putting, you know, if you want to watch the full video and put the link to TikTok. So oh, fair see, you are becoming more tech savvy. If you know how to yeah. do that, that's, that's great. <laughs> that, that makes me happy actually. Cause I know there's a lot of people that are, are leery of TikTok, but I'm glad that other people can get access to some of your, even if they're your shorter videos on yeah. Instagram or Facebook, is that that kind of spans all of the, all the different social media. So that's great. Now on TikTok, one of the things I love watching is I add your videos to favorites all the time because you talk about all sorts of things and, and like you go into specifics about uh, like the different types of MS, the different treatments of MS, diet, MS, exercise, MS, and even some of the other diseases that uh, can be like a MS and stuff. And so you go into a lot of description and like you said, you respond to people's comments and you do videos. Like it's it's like we have this special resource in you on TikTok. It's like we have our own MS doctor that understands us because she because she lives it out. So one of the, one of the really neat things is you like have images and then you describe what's going on. Like last night I was, I was rewatching some of them. Like if, if you have a lesion in this area, this could be some of the symptoms that you're having. Um, Or, you know, this is what an MRI looks like. And this is what we look for on an MRI uh, to diagnose you. Now, now in, in practice, do you find that a lot of your patients 
want to engage you in that way? Do they want to look at their MRIs? Do they want to know specific things or do they just want to know that they're going to be okay? I think uh, patients usually are interested in seeing imaging. Um, I don't know if I have always have the time to go specifically into all the things I cover on TikTok, like T1 T2 and black holes, unless they specifically ask like, hey, what does that mean? And then I'll go over it. Um, but usually I'll run them through the T2 flare, which is the one we usually look at and kind of show them the lesions and say like, yeah, this is just like a low lesion burden. They're just a few here, or this is like a medium or high, like we're seeing a lot of lesions. I'll show them their spinal cord if there are any spots. A lot of MS diagnosis is education. And I, the, one of the other reasons I started the channel is because I feel like we don't have enough time to educate people properly and understanding the disease and understanding why your doctor's asking you to do certain things, mm-hmm. take medications, do an MRI every year. Like if people don't understand why they're doing something, they're less likely to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things that I feel like helped me with my diagnosis is that I had already some base medical knowledge and I was able to, you know, read and interpret, think critically about the research papers that were coming out. And, you know, it's a, we trained for so many years. There's so much information about MS in my brain that I want to like share with everyone, you know, because I felt like it helped me say, okay, this is why I should be exercising. You know, it's not about like losing weight. It's about protecting my brain. And this is why I should be on a medication early. And if it's not working for me, this is why I should get on a a stronger one. And so Mm -hmm. I think helping patients understand those things, um, because sometimes, you know, it's like a big black box and they're like, well, I don't know. My doctor told me to do all these things, but I don't really understand why. And, and so that's kind of where I'm trying to fill the gap. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we're certainly in the MS community, we're certainly, certainly thankful that you're willing to fill that gap in and obviously TikTok is TikTok. It's, it's social media. You're not, you're not getting reimbursed for it. So you're here, you're finishing your, your fellowship, uh, pursuing, you know, your first job. And, and then in your very limited free time, you're willing to impart your knowledge to us. And so I thank you so much for that, uh, that you're willing to put the time out there because it's, you know, it's ultimately, I guess it is, it is helping you in your practice as you interact with patients and getting more education out there. Now, you you were saying that you don't have, obviously you don't have the time, you know, doctors are busy, MS clinics are busy. You don't have, you know, the time that you would love to be able to go in depth with TikTok mm-hmm. videos. What do, you, what do you do from an emotional standpoint for your patients? Obviously MS is hard. I remember going in many relapses and just, being in tears and not really being able to even talk out of fear and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of deal with patients when they come into your clinic, maybe in, in like a full on relapse and, and very scared about what's going on? Well, I will say that thankfully relapses are relatively uncommon nowadays. So that thankfully is a little bit different, but people are still scared. Like that doesn't change, you know, the fear, especially with the new diagnosis. And mm. um, I think, we also know that depression and anxiety are, you know, very common uh, in people with MS more, more so than in the general population. And so there is a, you know, a kind of checklist of items that we ask about at every visit, including how's your mood been? Have you been feeling lately? And I think sometimes people who even don't, aren't forthright about maybe those kind of feelings, then, you know, if they're pointedly asked about it, it'll come to light. And, you know, we can talk about it. And I think kind of normalizing those feelings and saying, Hey, like a lot of, 
a lot of people feel this way and you're not alone in that. And, and then kind of talking through, well, first, you know, empathizing, I think that's a, a big one. And then second saying like, you know, I think if you need some more support, here are some resources. I'm often giving people a list of therapists who specialize in chronic illness. Um, because I think that's, I mean, I think at, at some point in their life, everybody kind of needs counseling or mm. it could fit them. And yeah. uh, specifically, I mean, it's hard to find, but if you can specifically find a therapist who specializes in chronic illness, um, mm. that is even more helpful, I think, because, you know, people with who live with chronic illness have experiences that people who do not don't have. And so, you know, t- talking through some, with somebody that understands that mm. can be, you know, even more helpful. So I think that's kind of how I usually approach it. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great advice, and it is hard to find a therapist that specifically deals with chronic illness. But I, I do agree, it's it's a very different kind of therapy, and it's a different way of looking at life when it's chronic illness as opposed to, you know, something something could be very tragic, um, circumstantially, but chronic illness is something that you deal with your whole life, and you kind of go through a roller coaster of the changes that chronic illness brings. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed or triggered? Maybe you, someone with a more progressive um, form of MS comes in and, and they're really struggling. Do you ever find that you need a few extra minutes for yourself to kind of process what's going on? I don't think, uh, I mean, I don't think at this point that I am triggered. I think um, it would have been maybe more difficult for me earlier on in my diagnosis, I think when there's a lot more unknown, mm. but I mean, you know, I, I've been on treatment since the very beginning and I've thankfully done very well and I call myself lucky, but in all fairness, some of that luck, maybe, you know, the things that we tell everyone, get on medication early, take care of yourself, things like that. And so, um, I think the fact that I have been doing well is helpful for me personally. And, you know, seeing the spec, seeing the spectrum of disease just reminds me constantly that I need to, you know, to keep taking care of myself. Would you be willing to share what, what treatment that you decided to pursue? Uh, sure. I've been on several uh, treatments. Actually, I keep getting a- uh, questions about this on TikTok, so I'll probably make a video soon. But uh, when I first was diagnosed in 2016, I started on Copaxone, and okay. I did that for a few years. Um, I tolerated that okay, but I ended up getting a lot of lipoatrophy, which is kind of the like dimpling of the skin and kind of scarring and I was kind of running out of places that I could inject uh, and I was having a lot of issues with that. So I ended up switching to um, an oral medication, Vumerity. And I was on that for a few years. Um, at that time, I was also kind of on a few rheumatologic meds for my arthritis and was getting sick a lot. Um, but I ended up deciding to switch to Ocrevus um, last year, primarily for family planning reasons. I didn't have any breakthrough disease, but um, it was something that I initially, as a provider, was a little bit apprehensive of when, um, you know, it had come out and it sounds super scary, uh, like, you know, that you're going to completely deplete your B cells and not have any or have limited antibody production. But, you know, repeatedly in the clinic saw patients doing extraordinarily well, um, especially, you know, younger and otherwise healthy people uh, not getting sick and things. And so that kind of gave me the reassurance that I needed personally to say, you know what, this is actually a really good option for anyone who's kind of at the point of their life where they're trying to, you know, plan for a family and things like that, because it's very um, long lasting in its protective effects. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Ocrevus definitely has gained a lot of popularity. There, there are numerous uh, people on Ocrevus 
um, for different, because Ocrevus can treat relapsing remitting and primary progressive, like there's, there's many different stages of MS uh, that seek after Ocrevus's treatment. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad it's working for you. Now, what is the, like your, maybe the model at John Hopkins and your own personal thoughts, do you believe in hitting the disease hard at the beginning? Like there's different different clinicians feel differently about aggressive treatments initially. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for Johns Hopkins uh, stance, <laughs> uh, clinic yeah. stance, but I can say that um, generally speaking, uh, it's part of the art of medicine, right? That different providers will feel differently. And um, we actually have, we're one of the, well, we are the main site for the TREAT MS trial, which is, a randomized trial looking at um, the escalation approach where you start with a more mild medication and then escalate if there's disease activity versus starting with a higher efficacy medication. Um, and so that's an uh, that's been ongoing. Um, uh, it was delayed a little bit because of the COVID pandemic. So mm -hmm. um, they're almost unenrolling now. But um, so I think that there's certainly people that feel differently. I know that there are some centers where kind of everyone just gets put on high efficacy therapy. I can say that in my experience, um, and that's kind of, I don't think that a lot of the people I work with and that I personally feel that everybody needs to be on high efficacy therapy from the get-go. But I do think that being thoughtful about that choice, there are some patients that that's certainly the right choice for. Um, but it's always a discussion with, you know, the patient in front of you. And um, I think a big part of the decision of like, what treatment do you start with has to do with understanding the risk factors for a poorer outcome. Um, and we know that people who have a lot of disease activity in the beginning, a lot of lesions that have spinal cord lesions that incomplete, they have incomplete recovery from their relapses mm. are all poor prognostic factors. And so when those things are present, it does kind of push you to think of a higher efficacy medication first. Whereas like if you have someone like myself, for example, with the, you know, pretty non-disabling symptoms, uh, low lesion burden. And at the time I was diagnosed, no cord lesions. Like, you know, this is, that's somebody who, when I sit down with them, I say, you know, you might be okay on one of the more mild medications. Let's talk about the options and see kind of what you're comfortable with. So it really, it's a very nuanced decision, I think. And it depends a lot on the patient. There are like clinical factors, but also their feelings about treatment and kind of what risks and side effects they're willing to tolerate or, you know, risk in order to control their disease. So it's always a discussion and it's Absolutely. a long time. Absolutely. And it's interesting hearing it from, a, from a clinician perspective, how you assess people. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of thought that goes in on both sides, obviously as the, as the doctor, as the neurologist, and then as the patient deciding what everyone's comfortable with. And then I'm, I'm sure while well, I'm making an assumption here that when perhaps the patient has more disease burden and things like that, that you recommend stronger treatments to them at that point. Yeah, typically that is the case. Now, sometimes people say like, I don't want it. And we have a discussion about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly if we see things that make us concerned that they're going to have a worse outcome, we'll recommend a more aggressive therapy like Tysabri or Ocrevus from the start. Now, obviously, you know, it's been, well, I've certainly heard it. MS is a snowflake disease because everyone's so different and everyone has different symptoms and different progression. And I found it so interesting. One of the talks that you did on TikTok, you often pull out different articles and kind of break it down in, in layman's terms. And one of the articles 
that you actually put up was um, more about a genetic component and how some some patients that they might be following the right exercise routine, you know, a, an effective one or and diet, and yet their disease ends up being more progressive in nature than someone else who might be following similar lifestyle or medications. Um, would you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are still trying to understand MS, what exactly causes it, what exactly, you know, is the difference between people. And I think there's still a lot of unknowns. Um, we certainly know a lot more than we knew, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and then there's newer studies coming out now that we have more access to genetic testing that, you know, there have been, I think it's like 250 different genes that have been in some way linked to MS. Um, oh, and wow. a lot of those genes have to do with your immune system and how your immune system functions. So at the core of it, there's some sort of immune system dysregulation, but it's not the same gene in every person. And, mm. and because of that, I think you see a lot of variability. Um, and I think it's also a combination of those genes, right? There's not one gene that causes MS. Yeah. It's, it's Absolutely. like a combination of different things that your immune system's a little bit off. And then you get exposed to certain things in the environment. And it's like a perfect storm that leads to the disease to develop. Um, but yeah, there's been more recent evidence that that genetics may underlie why some people progress faster than others. Um, but again, it's kind of in the infancy of understanding all of this. So when people ask me like, well, should I get genetic testing? I mean, that's a hard answer. I, I say, well, probably not right now because we don't really un even know how to interpret that, right? Like, Absolutely. yeah, we don't understand that yet. I mean, you could get the, the data, but we won't really know what to do with it yet. Now, one thing about TikTok that I feel like makes, and I know you'll chuckle at this, uh, that makes it a little more unique. There's obviously, there's there's all sorts of people out everywhere that give really unhelpful advice and, and tell you to, they hear about MS and they tell you to, you know, have you, have you done yoga that will cure your MS or all sorts of things. But on TikTok specifically, there is this thing going around um, about, MS being caused by parasites. And if you take a certain anti-parasitic treatment, your MS will uh, disappear. And you have recently done quite a few uh, videos about this and about a lot about the research, about this paper that came out, kind of debunking it and, and highlighting the fact that it wasn't peer reviewed and things like that. Have you come across kind of, I don't want to say conspiracy theories, but... Um, <laughs> some of these things like this on Instagram or Facebook, like, is it specifically a TikTok community that is so obsessed with MS and parasites? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know why or how it got its start on TikTok. I had never heard of this theory before I was on TikTok. And almost immediately when I started doing videos, I started seeing this in the comments and I was like scratching my head. like, what the heck? The parasite one, it took me a while to debunk because I wanted to do it well and I wanted to do a little deep dive into, you know, where that was coming from. And I was honestly shocked. And then it kind of got me all riled up and kind of mad because I was like, all of these people, these, you know, hundreds or thousands of people are all citing this one really awful study and I just don't understand. <laughs> and it's like, none of them have even looked at the poster or read the paper. They're just propagating what they've heard from somebody else. And that's just how misinformation spreads. I would love to see another study to debunk this one, like an actual study. But the thing is, I don't think any academic professionals even know about this theory that there's not going to be any projects to debunk it, right? It's mm. like it was never circulated in any academic circles. This is only being circulated on social media. 
So I wanted to ask you, how do you go about, like, obviously you, as a clinician, you see people that are just in the process of being diagnosed. Maybe they just had their MRI. Maybe they're, they had their first relapse. How do you go about telling your patients that you think that it's MS or perhaps, you know, with beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's MS, like, how do you approach that topic when they come into your office? You know, it's, a good question. I think by the time most of them come into the large center where I work, usually they've seen somebody else who has a suspicion for MS and they send them to us. Okay. Um, and so I think it's a little bit different than if I was like in a smaller community location where I'm seeing people like for the first time, we're kind of usually the second step. And so a lot of times people already kind of have that in their mind and they're like, oh, well, I'm here to see like if you think I have MS. <laughs> mm, okay. um, and so there's not as much of that initial discussion, but then, you know, I think reviewing MRI is very helpful. And like I do on, on some of my online videos, um, just saying, well, these are spots we're seeing and these are or are not typical for MS for these reasons. Um, and then, you know, if they have other things like spinal fluid going through those results and saying, you know, based on all of these results, this does meet the, you know, the criteria for MS. Mm. Um, usually that's a, a lot of information to process. And so often we won't talk about medications that day, but bring them back soon thereafter to talk about well, okay, well, what are the treatment options? Because I feel like once you've given somebody a diagnosis, they kind of just need to process that. And they're not going to hear very much of the details or remember any discussion about specifics of medications. And so, um, but I do, you know, reassure people. I tell them that, you know, this disease is very different than it was two decades ago. Mm. And I, I go through all the things that I just put in my recent TikTok video for uh, newly diagnosed people. I tell them, you know, avoid the internet. Don't mm. compare yourself to other people. Um, if, you know, we're going to work together and get you on a medication that works for you, you're going to do really well. We know that our medications today work so much better than the ones that we had, op uh, you know, available 20 years ago. Absolutely. Um, and we know that people like, you know, a lot of people, they come into the office and they don't have disability, but the goal is to keep them that way. And so that they, you know, and I, we tell people, you know, are, you, we want you to stay like you are today. Um, and hopefully, you know, you're on medication and you don't even have to think about your MS and nobody knows you have MS except for us. And so I think that can be reassuring to, to people as well. Mm -hmm. Now, how open are you in discussing that your diagnosis is with your patients? Um, I don't, I don't often disclose that. I do very, very rarely if I think it's helpful and usually not in patients I'm going to see long-term. Mm, uh, I had, uh, I mean, every once in a while, if there's somebody who's really down on themselves and like really anxious, I'll say, look, you know, there's lots of people doing great with MS and then I'll share my story. And I've done that a probably less than a handful of times, to be honest oh, with you. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but that's mostly because when I was a resident and I was, I, I did uh, my very first MS patient that I had diagnosed and in the hospital during a flare. And I, I followed her, I had her in my clinic. So I was her primary doctor and I did share my diagnosis with her. And what I found is when she would come in for her appointment, she would ask me how my MS was doing. And so it kind of changed the dynamic a little bit okay. yeah. of our relationship. And, and I, I mean, it was great. It was a learning experience, but I said, okay, well, I don't really want my patients worrying about me. And so I don't need to, they don't need to know that unless I really feel like it's going to help them to know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, that sounds good. And, and I, I'm glad you had that experience kind of during your, your residency, you kind of learned what kind of happens like you 
you create this bond then with that person, like they feel connected to you. But at the same time, there is still, uh, it's not a power play, but it's, it's, you're, you're still the doctor and they're the patient as opposed to you're not necessarily their best friend. Yeah. So yeah. it's important to create that distinction. So it sounds like, it sounds like you learned early on exactly uh, how to stay kind of in your role and how to keep them as the patient and not as your, as your comrade, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, going forward, especially if, you know, patients end up seeing me who have seen my TikToks and know, like, I'm, I'm fine with that. But um, yeah, I think it was just, I'm just uh, sparingly sparing in my disclosure, <laughs> I guess. For, I should... sure. For sure. So obviously, you know, I, I learned about you on TikTok and now you're saying, um, you're on Instagram and Facebook. What do you think for, for people maybe leery of TikTok? What, what's the best way for people to learn more about you? Well, I mean, the videos can be viewed on Facebook and on Instagram as well. Um, but like I said, uh, the reels do truncate at 90 seconds. So mm. I, think, I guess if people are interested in the first 90 seconds, they can always go um, to TikTok. You don't need to have an account even to watch the videos. Um, but I think I a lot of people have a preconceived notion of TikTok that's not totally accurate. And maybe that's just from like the early days. And I wasn't on the app at that point, but mm. I was under the impression that it was all like silly videos and people dancing and <laughs> and then when I actually got on the app realized that it's there's actually a lot of you know there's a great community there's a great MS community on there and uh there's a lot of legitimate videos and in addition to the, the silly ones um, and so I think that that was helpful for me to learn and yeah I I also was shocked with how many people are on TikTok to be honest with you I really thought it was like a younger person's app and but there's people of all ages all over the world following me and I mean I was like pretty pretty shocked so I've definitely TikTok has grown on me and so I encourage people to give it a shot if they're a little bit you know suspicious of <laughs> yes no and that's true I think I think for many people I just started on TikTok a year ago myself and uh, and that's what I thought it was it, it was all about people's lip syncing and dancing but and there certainly is an overflow of that but there really is a, a huge MS community there's so much information like people such as yourself offering educational information and amazing supportive communities and just I have learned that it opens your mind it opens your world so much to learn that there's other people um throughout the world that have different challenges different struggles different disabilities different diseases like I think it's I think it's so eye-opening so on TikTok you break down a lot of different studies um, you talk about MRIs, you talk about different educational things for people that do want to learn more. What, because you said the internet can be a dangerous place full <laughs> of misinformation, what websites, what journals, um, what things, where would you, um, direct your patients, uh, to go and learn more, a reputable source that, you know, will not, uh, lead them astray. I usually refer people to the National MS Society's website uh, because they have a lot of really good resources. They also have, you know, a new section where they highlight recent research, but it's written up for a lay audience. And so I think that really any resources they're looking for, like caregiver support, I mean, all of that is covered on the National MS Society website. Now, is there anything in closing that you feel like we haven't talked about that you really want whether it's newly diagnosed or people that have been battling this disease for a time, is there anything else you'd 
because obviously on TikTok, you have a message that you want to get. There's there anything else that you'd like to share? I, I guess the message that I usually like to leave people with is that, you know, if they're, if they're newly diagnosed, the most important thing is to find a neurologist they trust, that they feel like they could work with and to get on treatment early. Because honestly, the, the only really heartbreaking part of my job is if, you know, you see somebody who has been untreated for many years, who's accrued disability and knowing that you could have potentially prevented some of that. Mm. That's kind of, that's really the only sad part of my job. Um, and so, you know, trying to, to that, and that's part of what, you know, I'm trying to do with my education. When people have occasionally sent me messages saying, hey, you know what, I stopped my disease modifying therapy, but I watched your videos and I restarted it. Like that means the world to me. And that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. No, that must be very rewarding that you can offer that education that, you know, like we talked about, there's so much misinformation out there. And so sometimes people make decisions based on reading an article or hearing something word of mouth that's not based in anything concrete. And then you can provide them kind of the facts and it must feel really good inside to know that what you're, what you're saying, what you're putting out there is, is changing lives. Yeah. It definitely is very rewarding. That's why I keep doing it. I have learned so much from this podcast. And I really hope uh, that even people that might be leery of TikTok, even if they only go on TikTok to learn um, more from you, I hope they do that because it's it is a it is it's a niche community. It's it's very unique having a neurologist out there, an MS neurologist out there that has MS herself that wants to educate people. It's Sometimes it's when you, when you listen to someone and all they have is facts and, and, you know, truth and things like that, it's very hard to sometimes relate to someone, but knowing that whether they actually know that you have MS or not, um, there's a level of understanding that you would provide, uh, to your patients, whether, like I said, whether they know your diagnosis or not, like it just having lived through the experience and living through the experience, uh, you provide a different kind of patient care than the average, uh, I'd say the average MS neurologist could provide. Yeah. And that's why I also felt like, you know, the community would hopefully be welcoming. And I, and I, and I was pleasantly surprised at all the support I got. And I'm really happy to continue, you know, sharing my experience and medical knowledge. That's great. Okay. So Dr. Sam, thank you again uh, for your very valuable time today. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. I hope today's podcast episode has given you the tools to better navigate your own MS journey. Be sure to check out the podcast notes for the links to connect with Dr. Sam on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook.